The group that was playing there was one of the, the big groups in Liverpool, which was Derry and the Seniors, featuring Howie Casey, the lead. And he sent me a letter over saying, look, Alan, we've got a good thing going over here for all the Liverpool groups. But if you send that bum group, the Beatles, over to Hamburg, you're going to louse it all up. For God's sake, don't send them. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Barry Chang. I'm Ben Rowling. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. Everybody hung round in this club called the Jacaranda, which was owned by Alan Williams. And that was the place in Liverpool. And he, like, had had these steel bands on and the rock bands. He ran all the bands in Liverpool. And so we started hanging round there before we were really formed a band, you know, when there was just me, Paul and George. And we were always looking for drummers. He used to let us practice downstairs. And then he let us play a, a few dances. And uh, he first took us to Hamburg. Alan Williams came to us and said, Okay, lads, you can have this job in Germany. The only problem is you've got to be five people. He's asked for a five-piece band. At that point, Paul was the drummer because all the drummers didn't show up. And so... The only way we could get to Hamburg, we had to have a drummer. And we just heard that this guy was... We, we knew of this guy who was living at his mother's house who had a club in it, and he had a drum kit. So we thought, OK, well, we'll get a drummer. Where do we get a drummer from? Mm -hmm. I, so I remember there's this guy I met who just got a drum kit for Christmas, his name's Pete Best. Pete's um, good mate, his mum had a club where we played. We did a quick audition with him. We just grabbed him, auditioned him, and he could keep one beat going for long enough. And jumped in the van and went to Hamburg. Come 
On Monday the 15th of August 1960, the Beatles set off on their first trip to Hamburg. And today, 60 years later, we have with us one of the people who travelled with them in the van and on the boat. And if you're thinking ex-Beatle, think again. Barry Chang, the brother of Alan Williams' wife Beryl, is, thanks to the organisational skills of Ben Rowling, right now speaking to us from his home in Liverpool, recorded by Howard Young. So, Barry, I know you went to the same school as Paul and George. Did you know them there at all? No, if, we, if I can just go back a little bit. John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe were attending Liverpool School of Art. And the building next door to that was the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys. So, in the School of Art were Stuart Sutcliffe and John Lennon. In the adjacent building was Paul McCartney and George Harrison. So for a short time, four of the Beatles were being educated within 100 yards of each other. And then I was also attended that school, although at different times, because we're different ages. And did you get to know them? No, we only knew because we were in different years. Alan Williams, who became the Beatles' first manager, married my sister Beryl in the mid-50s. Yeah. And the first part of their marriage, they lived in a self-contained flat within my parents' home. So I used to see an awful lot of Alan at the time. Yeah. Every day, virtually. And then within a few years of the marriage, Alan and Beryl opened the Jacaranda Coffee Bar, yeah. which was a non-alcoholic venue, and which became a meeting place for lots of the 1950s, 60s groups. Yeah. Um, they used to mingle in the daytime, evening, and late at night after they finished playing in the various venues, or possibly even in the basement of the Jacaranda. What was the atmosphere like in the Jacaranda that you recall? <laughs> Crowded, hot and very smelly. It was a really tiny shop. I would say the shop was probably only 20 foot wide yeah, and maybe 40 foot deep, ground floor and basement. And... There was only one way down into the basement and the same staircase was the way out. So yeah. I think today it would never have been allowed, you know. Right, which was pretty standard back then. Yeah, yeah. Were there other clubs that you visited at that time? Well, lots of them were coffee bars and sort of music venues. Yeah. But the cavern was open at the same time. And that actually started as a jazz club in its, its inception. How did you first hear from Alan about the Hamburg trip? After Alan and Beryl opened the Jacaranda, Alan soon ventured into getting into the business of representing various, then they were known as groups, but today they're called bands. And the Jacaranda was famous for a lot of them frequenting it. Jerry and the Pacemakers, Rory yep. Storm, lots of people used to be in and out. And the Jacaranda was then, in a very quiet part of Liverpool, there were hardly any clubs and restaurants about. But now, today, the Jacaranda is still open, and it's a drinking bar now. It's located in what has become the centre of nighttime life in Liverpool. Yeah. So things, things have really mushroomed over the years. Alan was ahead of his time, apparently. Yes, I think so. <laughs> what happened then was Alan bought an Austin minibus van because he was transporting groups here, there, and everywhere. Mm -hmm. Oh, pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> In those days, it was before the law about seatbelts. 
So the layout of the van was three seats across the front and two long seats at the back with a very narrow space in between these seats where you could put your legs and luggage if you had any. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the spring of 1960 now. You remember I said that Alan and Beryl used to live in my parents' house. Yes. There was one day that Alan took a telephone call and the call was to tell him that Eddie Cochran had just died in a, in a motor accident. Right. Alan, in conjunction with a music impresario called Larry Parnes, mm-hmm. was about to present Eddie Cochran at the Liverpool Stadium. Right. In the car crash that was fatal to Eddie Cochran was Gene Vincent. Yeah. He really badly damaged his legs. And then shortly after this accident, Gene Vincent did appear in the stadium. And I can remember meeting him and he, he appeared with his leg in irons which is a phrase you don't hear these days. I don't, I don't know what to replace these irons, but yeah. it was like two steel bars going down the side of his legs, mm-hmm. strapped together. Wow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, whilst at the same time wearing all leather. Yes. That must have been quite a sight. Yeah, yeah. Then came the day when Alan had arranged to take the Beatles to, to Hamburg, which is the first venture out of Liverpool. Alan had already had a couple of other groups in Hamburg, so knew the form. So the day to go was, it was a Monday, the 15th August, 1960. Uh, so we arranged to meet at the Jacaranda as being the departure point. Now, how did you get involved with that? What, why were you invited along? Well, I, I'd already set off on a, a career to become eventually a chartered civil engineer. Mm-hmm. And August was the summer holidays for me. So I was basically at a loose end, and because my sister was going, she invited me to go along with them. And you brought a camera with you, did you? Yeah, well, in those days, there was no mobile phones with the right. cameras, and I think cameras were, let's say, relatively expensive. So, in fact, I was the only one with a camera on board. So it, it came to the point where we're about to meet at the Jack Rander. So Alan, Beryl, and myself... We drove down from a parent's home. I think Paul and George probably went on the bus with their guitars. Mm-hmm. George and Stuart probably walked down because it was only half a mile to the Jacaranda from where they lived. Yeah. And Pete probably, with his drums, got a lift from his mother because he, he lived about probably three miles from the city. So we loaded up the van, speakers, guitars, luggage, Pete's drums on the roof, and... We were ready to set off. There were nine people on board at this stage. We left Liverpool with nine. Mm. Wow. Was there a seat for everyone? Yes. I think it probably held 12 or 13, but bear in mind there was lots of luggage. Yes. So on board, there were, I've got it in age order here, Lord Woodbine, who was a, a close friend of Alan. Yeah. Alan Williams, Beryl Williams, Stuart Sutcliffe, John Lennon, myself, Pete Best, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. Right. So leaving Liverpool, there were five Beatles and yep. four others. Yeah, wow. So then first port of call was a coffee house called the Heaven and Hell Coffee Lounge, which is, then was in Soho, and it was immediately adjacent to a more famous coffee place called the Two Eyes. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was very famous for... Lots of groups from the 50s starting their careers there. Yeah. Thinking of Cliff Richard 
and people of that ilk. Tommy Steele. Yeah, that's a down from the south. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Barry, how long did it take? Do you know? Do you remember how long it took to drive to Soho, London, from Liverpool? And two hundred and twenty miles. So yeah. I guess it probably took maybe six hours. You know, with no wow. motorways and a, a slow, fully laden van. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he and he couldn't go more than fifty-five anyway. That that was it. Oh, I wouldn't think so. No. Just thinking about the van and and what was in it. I mentioned before speakers. Yes. The boys had one each, and it was the size of a modern-day wheelie suitcase. Nowadays, speakers in a concert, each speaker is probably the size of the actual minibus, give or take. <laughs> yeah. get to the two eyes which today is a fish and chip shop yeah this is where her steiner comes into the picture alan had arranged to meet her steiner an austrian who was going to be the english interpreter for her koschmeider koschmeider being the owner of the clubs in hamburg that the beatles were going to be visiting so we picked him up with even more luggage (laughs) No, no equipment just luggage and then the next port of call was to go drive 85 miles to Harwich. Yeah. Because the crossing we, Alan had chosen was from Harwich in the UK to the Hook of Holland. And that crossing took about seven hours, I guess. Wow. So at this point, you've been into this for over 12 hours since you've left Liverpool. Uh, when, once, once we got off the boat, yeah. Uh, what was the atmosphere like inside the van with with so many people and what yeah. were your impressions of the various characters to be honest not nothing outstanding it was just a group of lads together and my sister and her husband and lord woodbine as they refer to 
I mean, in uh, Tune In, you know, it it states that they were looking at each other's passports and laughing and taking the mickey out of uh, Pete Best, whose name is Randolph, you know, calling him Randy and stuff. You know, was any of that going on, like, you know, picking on Pete or picking on Stu or any of that going on? No, to be honest, I can't. Well, there might have been, but I can't remember. Right. But going back to Harwich, that was the first opportunity I had of taking one of my photographs, which was of the van being picked up by Crane. Yes. Because in those days, there was roll-on and roll-off phase weren't in existence. Right. So you had to park your van and they put sort of steel bars on there and pick the thing up by Crane and dropped it onto the ship deck. So one of the photographs I took was of this minibus dangling in fresh air off a crane hook. I've seen two pictures of that. There were two pictures, yeah. Oh, okay. So it was just the two then. Yeah. Were there any other pictures that you that you took that, that have never been published? Yes, but I haven't got the roll of film. So. <laughs> 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 All right. Annoyingly. Well, do you recall what other photos you would have taken? No, no, not really. Right. Right. No. It's it's a bone of contention. This because uh-huh. um, it, it's documented that. I did take the photograph. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that's undisputed. Well, yeah. it, is, it is undisputed, yeah. apart from Getty, who huh. probably would dispute it, because today, if you want to use it, you can buy it from Getty. Ugh. Wow. Which is really annoying. Yes, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. I haven't been in touch with them, but the mm. photograph in Arnhem yes. is in probably thousands of books about oh, the yeah. Beatles. And yeah. it's on, I would say it's reproduced in the majority of them. At Arnhem, would you have taken more than just the one photo of them in front of the memorial? No, I don't think so. Ah, And and why were neither John or Herr Steiner in the photo? Was it true what Alan said, that John didn't want to get out of the van because he hated the sight of so many graves? Well, I don't know if that is true or not. I can't remember there being any discussion about it. Right. It's actually the Airborne Cemetery in Oosterbeck, which is very near Arnhem. There was a terrible battle in Arnhem in the Second World War, and the UK lost thousands of guys. Yeah. Mostly from the Airborne Division. The cemetery is about a quarter of the way from Hook of Holland to Hamburg. Mm -hmm. So we just stopped off on the way to pay our respects. And thinking back, it's incredible that this trip we made was in 1960, the Battle of Arnhem was only in 1944. Right. Yeah, so it was, it was only 16 years prior to us standing there looking at the graves. Yeah. The, these guys were unfortunately killed. And actually, given that, that as you say, it, the, the war was still so recent and memories were still so fresh, what was it like having an Austrian in the van with you? Well, there was no comment about his history. There's no mention of the war at all. Right. In fact... It's one of the things I can think back on when we were in Hamburg. Although it was only 15 years since the end of the war and Hamburg took a real bad bombing Mm -hmm. in 43, I think it was. It was actually almost obliterated. But I can't remember seeing any bomb damage at all. Wow. Mm. Because we certainly had it still in London in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. They had it in Liverpool in the 80s when I used to go uh, up. Uh, go yeah. up, up yeah. Upper yeah. Parliament Street, you know. Yeah. There's one thing I wanted to ask you, Barry. Did you actually go to Arnhem because you guys wanted to or because you actually took the wrong way and got lost and suddenly decided that you would go there anyway? 
Well, I, I would have said we went deliberately to to pay, really? to pay our respects, okay. but um, yeah, because that's what know. Alan said. But it's you know uh, yeah. at the same time, it could be assumed that you know you guys showed up there just because you kind of got lost, but you decided to actually go there. No, I think I think we did go there deliberately. And also, it was in Arnhem that, as Alan documented, John stole a harmonica at the music <laughs> store. Uh, well, w. w. Bergman Music Store. He said that you and Beryl and himself were standing outside the store when the Beatles came back out and John was flashing this harmonica. Do you recall that? No, I read about that, but I can't remember it. <laughs> right. I know that Beryl said that she didn't want to give interviews while Alan was still alive because she didn't want to contradict him. <laughs> Is there anything now that um, you would wish to say to set the record straight of anything that he said that you disagree with? No, I don't think so. Mm. Did you just go back to uh, what happened actually in the cemetery now? Yes, sure. We'd, we'd walked up and down the rows and rows of crosses. We got my camera out again and asked a group of us to assemble on the cenotaph. The cenotaph was the memorial to the fallen. Yes. So a few of them stood round and posed for the picture. Unfortunately, the inscriptions of the fallen, which reads... Their name liveth forevermore. Yeah. We're still in view and comes out quite clearly on the photo. So I wish I could say that I knew what was going to happen to these guys in the near future. And that's why I took the photograph. But in truth, any visitors to, to the cemetery, I think they would all go and stand at this place to have the photograph taken. Right. Well, as you say, you, you couldn't foresee the future, but you did take one of the legendary photos of the Beatles. Yeah, as it turns out, yeah. Yeah, yeah it amazing is. Amazing photo. What were you thinking during that trip? Probably my first thought is a nice way to spend a holiday. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Barry, every once in a while I've had the opportunity to speak with somebody like you who uh, just on one ordinary day that was so much maybe like the day before and a few days after, but on one particular day you witnessed history and you were living the history right there. Yeah. And I always ask people, like, what would you have done different if you knew now what was about to happen? Like, if you could relive that day, what would you do different? I think the one thing I would have done looking back, I would have taken more rolls of film with me <laughs> and not give them away. <laughs> <laughs> and had a photo of you with them. You, do you have any oh, photos? Oh, yes, yes. No, I haven't got a photograph of me. I mean, <laughs> in those days, it was a big thing to have a photograph taken. You know, these days, it would have been every few seconds, there'd be all the guys would be photographing everything, you know. Yeah. What happened to the photograph was Al eventually wrote a book about his involvement yes. with them. Yeah. And... I gave the photographs to Alan. What, for nothing? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, then it was nothing, wasn't it? Yeah, on right. the day I gave it to him, it was just a photograph here as a photograph. <laughs> yeah. But, but you were never able to get him back, unfortunately, right? So, I mean, no, I mean no. do, do you suppose there's somewhere amongst his things that no, you might find him again? I don't think so. Well, I don't know what happened, but oh, we haven't mentioned Alan's book yet, have we? No, the man who gave the Beatles. Away. Yeah, so yeah. so let, let's go back a bit in time again. Well, first of all, the whole trip probably took thirty six hours from Liverpool. Wow. To get to Hamburg. 
And was Alan just driving the whole time or doing it in shifts? No, there was myself, Alan, and Lord Woodbine. Ah. Lord, and you were Lord, 18, Barry? No, 19. 19, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, just a lad, you know. Yeah. yeah. Like the others. <laughs> Basically, were you just sort of fumbling your way along in terms of directions, you know, using maps? Maps, yeah. There's an organisation in, in the UK called the AA, yes. Auto, Automobile Association. Yes. In those days, before Satnav, it's incredible <laughs> to think of. Yeah. If you're a member of the AA... Which has different connotations here in the US, obviously. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you get in touch with them and say, I'd like a route from, in this case, Liverpool to Hamburg. Right. And they send you a wad of paper... Probably like a sat-nav directions, you know, the typed out directions. Yes. It's like that, only it would be pages and pages long, you know. Yeah. Saying, turn left at the such and such a pub and go for 400 yards and then right. straight ahead at the junction, you know. Yeah. And, and what yeah. about food and drink for the journey? We, we, you know, did you bring stuff with you or are you stopping along the way? Well, we obviously stopped to eat because it's a long journey. Yeah. But where the food came from, I don't know. Right. And so, as you said, you couldn't, you can't really remember the interactions with the guys, but was it pleasant enough company? No one was causing a problem. Oh, no, no. Don't think so. You got to Hamburg in the early hours of the morning, is that right? You said midnight, right? Goes on for midnight, yeah. one night we got the timing wrong there was no one there to meet us but we could find Hamburg off the map but then trying to find St. Pauli the little district and Reaper Bomb everyone knew oh Reaper man yours this way you're going to miss I don't keep it to other houses okay so we went down well, we found the street and the club but it was all closed but we were there with no hotel or anything and it was now night time yeah so we managed to shake up someone from a neighbouring club or something. They, they found the guy and he opened the club and we slept the first night in the alcoves on the little red leather seats. The second night we moved in the Bambi Kino and then we were there for ages, yeah. like two months, three months. We stayed in this place called the Bambi Kino. Where are we sleeping? Oh. We led over the corner <laughs> to the Bambi Kino, right which was a second-rate flea pit. I run down to the... Flea pit, you know, and we were living in the toilet next to the ladies' toilet, you know. 
And that was where we washed, you know. That was our bathroom. And we had just a little room right next to the toilet, so he's really kind of, you know, forget it. I mean, they wouldn't have allowed it, actually. Public health inspector, I'm sure, would have closed it down, but no one looked, you know. And there was a bed, a camp bed, and a sofa. Paul and I were looking at one, and we turned around and said, well, where the hell are we going to stay? Now, what Paul and I had passed as we were coming up the hallway were two concrete dungeons, and we could talk to one another because there was a hole in the wall. <laughs> it was cold, there was no heating, you know. And this is winter in Germany. Paul and I sort of looked at one another and sort of grimaced, and it was like, well, let's get on with it. Where these clubs were was in the, in the district called the Reaper Barn, which was the red light district. Do you remember anybody's impressions, including your own, where you suddenly discovered this? Like, um, was that kind of news, or were you guys prepared? Oh, this is this is like we're oh, on the hooker's no, no, no. Oh. I mean, you know, your teenage boys weren't your eyes bulging. Oh, it was just <laughs> the whole thing. Was, someone else. The whole thing was an eye opener then. <laughs> was it obvious? Did you see uh, girls hanging around on the corners or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything else was such a buzz, you know, being mm. right in the middle of the naughtiest city in the world at 17 years old. It mm. was kind of exciting. And learning, you know, about, well, there's all the gangsters and there's the transvestites and there's the, you know, it was like that. There's the hookers. We got into, you know, making friends with the girls and there was... You know, call girls who sort of fancied us on stage. We fancied them, so, you know, the two got together and we enjoyed ourselves. At that time, we were just kids let off the leash, really, come straight from Liverpool to Hamburg. And we were used to these little Liverpool girls, but by the time you got to Hamburg, if you, if you got a girlfriend there, she was likely to be a stripper. She was the only kind of people who were around at the time we were around late at night there. So, I mean, you'd... For someone who'd not really had much sex in their lives before, which none of us really had, to be suddenly involved with a sort of hardcore striptease artist who obviously knew a thing or two about sex um, was quite an eye-opener. I saw her standing on the corner Give me a phone A yellow ribbon in her Give me a phone I couldn't stop myself falling Wow, well, look at that Look at that
the police used to come around to the clubs almost nightly to check the IDs and the ages of the of the youngsters yeah. who were who were present in the club. And if you're underage, you'd be thrown out. Did you feel a sense of danger in that area? I mean, did you feel like, oh, I got to really watch myself. This place is kind of tough. Or, or were you just like carefree kids and you're like, ah, we'll make it up as we go along? Yeah, we were just carefree kids. But one thing I can remember as well as the not seeing any bum damage was there didn't seem to be any ill feeling between German nationality and the UK contingent, Interesting. which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years later. That's amazing. Yeah. The Indra Club, where the Beatles were playing, that was a small club, I would say, with a very small stage, no more than 20 feet wide and 10 feet deep, just over a foot high. So in terms of how close you were to the acts, you could easily touch them. Yeah. I can remember that in the back corner, the Indra Club used to be all to do with stripping, and the back corner of the stage was like a what you'd see like a, a dressing cubicle. Mm-hmm. That you see in a sort of a, a small clothes shop these days. Yeah. Just a curtain round. I'm not sure how I can remember this, but I can. <laughs> yeah. Had a, a white Might trans- be the subject matter. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> Obviously, sit in your brain there, Barry. It had a white translucent curtain round it. Ah. And the girls who were performing the acts would come in in the street clothes, go across the stage into this cubicle, put on a big floodlight, and you could watch them changing from the day clothes into the stage clothes in silhouette. And then the, <laughs> then they'd come out and do the strip act. The Beatles weren't playing when all this was going on. <laughs> well, not playing <laughs> instruments anyway. And then um, they'd come out and do their strip act. And then at the end of that, go back into the cubicle with less clothing on than they came out in and get ch- the same routine in reverse, get changed from the little clothing they had on back into the street clothes in silhouette and come out again and off they'd go. So the customers were getting, I'd say, three shows for the price of one. So they were getting more than they would get at the Jacaranda. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stripping aside, in terms of the actual venue, this small venue, how did it compare to the Jacaranda? Was it seedier? What was it like by comparison? It was bigger. I yeah. would say. The, the Jacaranda was really tiny because um, it was only a small building anyway. Mm. It had seats around the walls, a bit like a bar, but it was only um, non-alcoholic. Right. That first night when you arrived, where did the rest of you bed down? We know about the Beatles and the Bambi Kino, but where did the rest of you sleep? Well, nothing had been arranged for us, so we just went off. Lord Woodbine, we, called, we always used to call him Woody. Yeah. Woody, Alan, Beryl and myself went off to find a cheap hotel somewhere not too far away. Right. And then we'd come back every night or even during the daytime to meet up again in the Reaper Barn district. How long did you guys stay there for, Barry? Alan and Beryl and I came back after about a week, I'd say. Oh, wow. That's a fair amount of time. For some reason, I thought you guys kind of almost dumped them off and then off you went, but I guess not. Oh, no, no. We stayed there for a while. Was that the only time you were actually there? Uh, yes. I'm yeah, just Hamburg for that again. one week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Do you recall the Beatles' very first performance at the Indra? No, I can't, I can't remember the performance, but um, in 1960, there weren't any Beatle hits. The playlist, I would say, was com- comprised music from Pat Domino, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis and the like. Mm-hmm. 
But I can remember one instance when I'm not sure whether they were tuning up or what or what they were doing. But um, in August 1960, there was a song called Apache. Yes. Mm-hmm. Recorded by a band called um, The Shadows. The Shadows, yes. Yeah. And I can remember actually saying to George when they were all messing about on the stage, you know, before they started the act, can you play me a rendition of Apache, George? Hmm. And to which he said, must have said something like, yes, okay, and off he went and just played it by ear. Wow. <laughs> so That's cool. <laughs> You said obviously you could remember a specific performance, Barry, but do you recall your impressions of them on stage? Because by all accounts, they weren't all that impressive to begin with. You know, this is where they would grow up in Hamburg. Do you recall your own impressions of them? I think that's true that they they weren't impressive because I suppose it's like us going to listen to German music, isn't it? It takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah. But I can't remember anything specific about the performance. Mm Mm-hmm. What about your week in Hamburg? What other memories do you have of that week? Alan and Bella and myself, we probably went where the boys were playing every night. Okay. And just walked around the city in the daytime. Yeah. Something I want to clear up, actually, I don't know if you would know this, but in his book, Alan cited the Royal Caribbean Steel Band going to Hamburg as the inspiration for him taking the Beatles there. When Mark Lewison interviewed one of the band members, he actually interviewed Everett Estridge years ago. And Everett, when when Mark said to him, now tell me about going to Hamburg, Everett said, we never went to Hamburg. (laughs) (laughs) So do do you know if that was a a true story that they went to Hamburg or was it maybe apocryphal? I can't remember them actually going, but I've met Everett quite often. Yeah. I, I can't remember him going to Hamburg, to be honest. Mm, so you're so you're on the on the side that they actually never went, <laughs> right? Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. That makes sense, sure. Yeah. Because I'm sure he would have told you if he, you know, if yeah. he said that you know him. Talking about steel bands, I can actually remember uh, watching Woody make a steel drum in the basement of the Jacaranda. Really, which is a, wow. a, a sight. It's definitely a skill. Yeah. Some people might think that they're made in a factory, but they are actual oil drums that have been battered. That's how they're made. Yeah, somehow I can't imagine a group of German teenagers going out to see a steel band and then see, you know, <laughs> no, rock no. and roll. <laughs> Slightly yeah. different. It doesn't make know? sense. You know, you were there for the for the first week, Barry. I was like, what were your impressions of the German crowd, of, of their reaction to the Beatles, if you can remember? No, I can't remember anything about right. the crowd, but I can remember the band being told to try and liven themselves up a bit, let's say. Right, yeah. But what was the crowd like, though? Was it a bunch of, like, German heavies? And, uh, you know, I mean, what was your impression of the customers, like, in those early days? It's not in my mind that they were, let's say, heavies. Mm, right. They're just youngsters. When I've seen films that were shot, there's actually an amazing piece of colour footage from the from the film Mondo Cano, uh, which was shot couple of years later uh going up the reprobon and uh i noticed uh, oh, on yeah. either side of the street you've got like uh female mud wrestling bars and uh and, th- and just loads and loads of drunks so i was kind of curious did did you guys ever like go out on the piss one night in one of these sort of awful looking beer halls uh, on either well, side well I, I can i can remember going to a mud wrestling night aha uh-huh. what really there <laughs> I, I you don't partake you're watching it you're not in it 
<laughs> so you haven't um, got a Beatles I've... mud wrestling story? No, no. <laughs> only, only as I've seen it in action, let's say. fascinated by anybody who knew Stuart Sutcliffe on any level. Did anything in particular ever jump out at you as a memory of, of being around Stuart or a conversation you may have had or just what was he what was he like? I would say he was the quiet one. He, even more quiet than George. Right. Yeah. Before I mentioned about the act not being very lively on stage. And I didn't expand on it, but I can remember them being told I think Koshmeyer was the first one to mention it, that he thought, let's say, they were just standing there playing guitars and singing and not putting on much of a show, you know, in terms of jumping about and whatnot. Right. Making a bit of a spectacle of themselves. Yeah. Because he, he wanted the German people to be have a bit of a some entertainment, you know, rather than just listen to the music. So I can remember that cropping up. Did you see in that era Rory Storm and the Hurricanes? Because Rory was known for being quite theatrical and jumping around the yeah. stage. I mentioned about all the people who used to come into Jacaranda. Mm. I would say Rory was the most friendly out of any of the people at all. Right. I can say now, even though he has passed, he, he had a terrible stammer in his speech. <laughs> but once the music started... I don't know why you don't stammer when you're yeah. singing, if you know what I mean. Different part of the brain, I think, yeah. perhaps, yeah. you know. I used to have the same problem, so I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It was just an amazing difference. Yeah. Right. But such a friendly guy, you know. Do you have any memories of Mo Best, Pete's mum? No, no. I know I know she got a bad reputation, but 
not in that year in a certain way. I actually remember in 77, I was in Liverpool on Beatles convention, okay, and uh, we went on a magical history tour, as they called it. Beryl was my tour guide on, on Albus. Oh, right. Wow. And, oh, right. And when we got to um, Heyman's Green, you know, the best household, Alan went hiding because he described Mona Best in his book as a mean and volatile woman. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he he kept out of sight when we saw her. Well, that's all right, mama. That's all right to do. Yeah, that's all right, mama. Just any way you do. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Hamburg, the last time you really had any real interaction with the Beatles. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. And then what about... Bear in mind, I'm not, I wasn't involved in the actual music scene. Right. I was just, um, let's say, a bystander. But post-Hamburg, you know, once you were back in Liverpool through those years of sort of 61, 62, 63, were you still going to the clubs? Yeah. Well, some of the time I was actually working in London, but um, generally, yeah. 
And do you recall seeing the Beatles in any of the venues there, like the Cavern or, you know, Aintree Institute or Litherland Town Hall? Did you go to see them uh, at all? Only, only in the Cavern. I can't remember all the other venues that they've appeared at. Give us your impressions of the Cavern. It's been very well documented, but what are your impressions of the Cavern? Well, another dingy cellar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Alan a little bit here because, you know, yeah. Alan was the first one to talk about all of his business disasters and how things went wrong. But Alan was also a go-getter. He always had a, had a tendency to do business like, you know, a little bit differently, shall we say. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he had uh, qu quite a few ventures with Woody. Exactly. Woody. Yeah. Right. And which, right. which mostly were based in a district in Liverpool called Toxteth. But he was always trying to make money off the uh, Beatles. Uh, yeah, always, yeah, you know, yeah. Even with the Hamburg tapes, you know, the uh, Star Club tapes and, uh, you know, you know, whatever it was. He was always still trying to make money off them, you know, one way or the other. Once Brian Epstein took them over and they went on to become more and more famous, virtually daily, Alan became known as the man who gave the Beatles away. Right. After some time, so I would say in about the mid-70s, Alan was frequently invited to go to various Beatle conventions mm -hmm. across the world to speak about his involvement with the Beatles and why he gave them up and what a fool he was kind of thing. Mm. He travelled worldwide doing this, signing autographs and giving talks. Yeah. Like, a bit like, bit like an after-dinner speaker, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's what he... That's what he's, I remember his promotional picture I got in 76 was uh, the... <laughs> The world's only talking head about the birth of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember Alan at one of the Liverpool conventions selling his own mugs, and on, on the mug it said, the mug who gave the Beatles away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right, how yeah. was it, though, Barry, yeah. having this guy as a brother-in-law? I mean, for God's sakes. I mean, how was that? Well, he, he was all up to some bet business venture, most of them which yeah. were not very successful. Bent, as you say in England. He could yeah. say that, yeah. We're into 2014 now. Alan Bell and myself were approached to see if we'd be interested in being filmed for Ron Howard's film. Uh, I worked on that one, Barry. Oh, did you? <laughs> that, that was my job for three years, yeah. Oh, right, well... I have to start telling the truth now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wow. You go right ahead. Tell it, tell it, tell it. Let's hear it. You might be able to say something that I can't, so you go right ahead. <laughs> no, we, we, the three of us were asked if we'd um, be interested in taking part of filming in, in readiness for this film. Eight days a week, the touring years. So we, the three of us did take part in the interviews and all of us survived the editing process. And we can be seen on the what is the free supplement that comes along with the cd there was nine full cuts of that film really? it took a long time so wow. i think in the er, one of the earlier cuts where they emphasized a lot more about hamburg i think barry and, and I, certainly alan's in it so that was premiered in september of 2016 yes so the three of us went to that mm -hmm. in may of 2016 alan was awarded the citizens of honor by the city of Liverpool in recognition of his contribution to the music industry in the city, which is well deserved, I think. Absolutely. Because the legacy of the Beatles lives on to this day in Liverpool. He was always self-effacing, Alan, actually. You know, I remember him sort of saying he was a tiny cog in a big wheel. Actually, without that Hamburg trip, it, this would have been a whole different story. 
Out of the 10 people who travelled on the minibus to Hamburg, five have since passed away. Stuart Sutcliffe in 1962, John Lennon 1980, Lord Woodbine 2000, who died in a terrible fire, George Harrison 2001, and Alan Williams in 2016. Yeah. And the whereabouts of her Steiner are unknown to me. Did you have any uh, relationship with Woodbine? Oh, yeah. Harold Phillips. He was a really funny guy, but he was so intelligent. He actually died in his own house fire. What do you recall of him on the Hamburg trip? Well, I think he was just along for the ride, but mm. probably just carrying the stuff, because there wasn't a roadie then. Yeah. The guys just used to do it themselves. We'd carry the stuff. So 60 years, Barry. Yeah. Just fantastic to get you on this show. We really appreciate it. We absolutely do. A vital voice in the story. <laughs> when you think the Beatles started and finished within 10 years, yeah. when you think about their legacy, it seems too short to be true. Shaking but the leaves on the trees We meet the gang and go to rocking shows The cats are stomping on the heels and toes I grab my baby, try to give her a squeeze Snarling, shaking but the leaves on the trees Well, why must she be such a doggone tease? There's nothing shaking but the leaves on the trees Got a way that makes me act like a fool Spends my money that she plays me cruel I'm begging for her kisses on her bended knee Oh, won't you give me some of loving, baby? Please, please, please Oh, I keep trying hard to make her mine One day the wind will blow and sun will shine Till that time she puts my heart at ease But I'll shake Shaking but the leaves on the trees Shaking but the leaves on the trees 
Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Minimus did not have any form of advertising posters or publicity on it about who was inside. Albeit that virtually nobody from outside of Liverpool would have heard of the Beatles. I remember suggesting that we make our own, so shortly after leaving the dockside in the, in the Hook of Holland on our way to Hamburg, we stopped to buy some Dutch newspapers and then we tore out by hand sufficient letters from the headlines to make a few sets of a sign that spelled the Beatles. We then stuck these facing outwards to the inside of the glass windows of the minibus using saliva, aka spit, as the adhesive. 